0: early morning hours of June 6, 1941, every member of the US Army's 101st Airborne Division knew exactly what to do. They knew how to jump out of their planes in an orderly manner when the pilots gave them the green light over Normandy. They knew how to cut free from their parachutes once they reached the ground. Um, they knew how to form ranks and work together to capture strategic targets. Uh, they knew exactly what to do. The plan was clear, and the plan was specific. And all in, the D-Day invasion involved more than 156,000 Allied soldiers. And this is the staggering thing. Every single one of them knew exactly what to do. Everyone fulfilled their specific part, and all the parts were coordinated perfectly together, and uh, so the victory came. So after the invasion, Winston Churchill said this. He said, everything proceeded according to plan. And what a plan. D Day wasn't just well planned, D Day was a symphony. Sun Tzu, in his ancient treatise, The Art of War, says that every battle is won before it is fought. And every decent general knows that on the eve of battle, troops need clear, specific instructions about what to do. Uh, This isn't just the case in war either. Um, Any CEO, any high school soccer coach, any wedding planner knows this. Um, Anyone who's ever planned or been to a wedding knows this. Good grief. Um, They'll tell you the same thing. Clear, specific communication is vital to the success of any mission. And that's why I've been so perplexed by Jesus's words to his disciples on the night before his death. He isn't clear. He isn't specific. He even admits it. Look at verse 25 of our passage. He says this, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. This is the crucial moment. This is the eve of battle. Jesus isn't giving clear, specific marching orders. He's using figures of speech, metaphors, cryptic sayings, poetic images. This is crazy. Is Jesus a bad communicator? Is he a clueless leader? I don't think so. I think he knew exactly what he was doing. And I think there's a reason why he gives his disciples an obscure discourse instead of clear, specific marching orders on the eve of battle. And I think that that reason is the key to the entire Christian life. But first, we want to need to set the scene. The village of Bethany is about a mile outside of Jerusalem. And a short time before this all happened, Jesus went to Bethany, and there he raised his friend, whose name was Lazarus, from the dead. And this made Israel's political, religious establishment very, very nervous. At the end of chapter 11, we read that they gathered together. They had a little backroom colloquium, and they said, "'What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation.'" So, they literally decide that Jesus is a threat to national security. So, what do they do? They put a bounty on his head. If anyone sees him, they're to turn him in. Eventually, he was sold out for 30 pieces of silver. But that's later. Jesus becomes Israel's most wanted. So, Jesus and his disciples go into hiding uh, nine miles northeast of Jerusalem in a little forgotten town called Ephraim. The text says in John eleven fifty four 54, that it's near the wilderness. And this creates something of a stalemate between Jesus and the authorities. The authorities want to kill Jesus and his friends. They put an, a, a warrant out on Lazarus' head, too. Um, but as long as Jesus is hiding in Ephraim, they can't find him. He's safe. But guess what? He doesn't stay in Ephraim. Five days before the Jewish Passover, he makes a bold move. He breaks quarantine, to put it in our modern terms. Uh, To give you a sense of what Passover is like, uh, take all the patriotism of the 4th of July, and then combine it with all the nostalgic enthusiasm of Christmas, and then you take that concoction, pump it with anabolic steroids, and set it on fire. That's Passover. Passover was the commemoration of the time when God delivered Israel from a totalitarian regime in Egypt. So remember uh, Moses and the Ten Plagues? That's Passover. It was a big deal. People flocked to Jerusalem from all across the world for this celebration. It was nationalistic, it was religious, it was a frenzy. And five days before this, right as things are ramping up, I mean, think about the shopping malls five days before Christmas. Good grief. Um, Right as this is ramping up, Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, which is the first century Israel equivalent of a white horse, and the crowds flock out to meet him. Uh, This is not an ambiguous symbolic gesture. It's very clear. Everyone understands what this means. The crowds have palm branches that they're waving in in their hands, and they say, Behold, the King of Israel. Jesus has the raw ingredients for a revolution. And his disciples know it. The crowds, they're waving it. They're ready to unite behind him against the Romans. Jerusalem's a powder keg. All Jesus has to do is set the fuse. That's it. So after this triumphal entry, as we know it, uh, Jesus lays low with his disciples somewhere in the city. They probably have enough popular support that the Romans aren't just going to come and get them wherever they're staying at the time. Uh, they're afraid of the people, it says in other Gospels. So now Jesus has this brief window of time to give the marching orders for the revolution. Now is the time for Jesus to craft a symphony of assault like D-Day. They have the people on their side. Um, They've got the leader with all the charisma. If everyone does their part, they could overthrow this oppressive regime, just like the Maccabees did hundreds of years before. Now's the time for clear, specific instructions. Now's the time for a battle plan. But that's not what we get, is it? Oh no. We get John 14 through 17, commonly called the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. And if you've ever read it, you'll know that it's definitely not a battle plan. There are no clear, specific instructions about what they're going to do the next day. Instead, Jesus talks about the Father. He talks about what love is. He tells his friends about grace and truth and eternal life and the Spirit of God. He uses metaphors and one-liners. In my father's house, there are many rooms. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. These images have a way of sticking in our minds. Uh, It just like sticks to your brain like a burr, and then it burrows down into your heart. And that's precisely what he intended them to do. It's the kind of words that stick with you 20 years later after you hear them. But it's not all metaphors, actually. Jesus makes a bunch of promises, too. For example, look at verse 26 of our passage this morning. Jesus says this, in that day, meaning the day of resurrection, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you've loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Notice, Jesus is not concerned with battle tactics here. He's not even really concerned with morality. This isn't just a lecture. This is a talk on relationship. Jesus wants each of his disciples to have a personal relationship with God. That's his focus on the night before his death. And as a side note, he wants that for you, too. But the disciples don't get it. Uh, they think they get it, but they don't get it. Um, look at verse 29 of our passage. Uh, they, they express a sense of understanding, but they don't understand. His disciples said, verse 29, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that, all, that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. They say, we get it. We get it, Jesus. Now we are enlightened. Now we understand what you're all about. And Jesus says, really? Do you now believe, he says? See, Jesus is talking about love. He's talking about God. But the disciples are fixing for a fight. You know, Jesus is going on about love. I imagine that Peter's up there in the upper room and he's sharpening his blade. Um, Later in the evening, after all this has been said, uh, as the guards come to get Jesus, Peter pulls out his sword and hacks somebody's ear off. What do you think? Do you think they got it? No. They don't get it. They're not tracking with Jesus at all. They're ready for a revolution. So, what is Jesus up to? We saw earlier how important it is that every soldier on the battlefield has clear, specific instructions about what to do. No responsible leader would ever send their soldiers into battle without them. But Jesus does not give clear, specific instructions about what to do. Instead, he offers cryptic words and amazing metaphors, and a lot of promises. And my question is, why? What's he doing? I think there are two possibilities, and I favor the second one. Either Jesus isn't giving instructions because he's a foolish, irresponsible leader who has no idea what he's doing. Or perhaps he isn't giving instructions because he's going into the battle alone. Jesus loved his disciples, but he wasn't naive about them. And he knew knew exactly what every last one of them was going to do. Think of Judas. Does Jesus have any illusions about why Judas leaves the room in the middle of dinner? No. He He knows Jesus is going out to betray him. And he looks at Judas across the table and says, what you're going to do, do quickly. Or think of Peter. Peter promises Jesus, listen, I'll lay down my life for you. Does Jesus buy it? No. He says, Peter, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And how about the rest of the the Mary crew? Look at our passage. Jesus says in verse 32, verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you, my disciples, will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. You're all going to abandon me, guys. I know how this ends. This isn't a symphony. It's not a coordinated group of soldiers who achieve the victory together. Spiritual warfare is not that kind of battle. Jesus does not invite his disciples into that kind of battle. If that's what it was about, he would have told them then and there. He would have employed their help. He doesn't. Jesus does not invite us into that kind of a battle. That's the key to the Christian life. Look with me at verse 33. Let me remind you of what Jesus doesn't say in verse 33. He does not say this. I've said these things to you that together you may wage war. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, you will overcome the world. He doesn't say that. That might be the motto of our whole society, but that's not the gospel. It's not what Jesus says. He says this, I told you these things that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus didn't give us a battle plan because he fought alone on our behalf. Jesus is the one who went to the cross and suffered and died. He's the one who bore the sins of the world. He's the one who defeated death. He was, is the one who was crucified to atone for your and my sins. He's the one who rose from the dead. He's the one who sits on the throne and governs the world. He's the one who sends his spirit to empower the church. He's the one... Who has overcome the world. And so when Jesus says, I've overcome the world, he doesn't mean I've endured the world, or I've outlasted the world, or I've won some kind of metaphorical moral victory over the world by being really noble in the face of uh, authorities that wanted to crucify me. The word is Nenikika, it means I have conquered. So we live in this time of paradox, don't we? Jesus has overcome the world, but some days it doesn't look like it. Actually, to most folks these days, it looks like a novel coronavirus from somewhere in the Chinese heartland has overcome the world. It looks like fear and, and anger and prejudice have overcome the world, as another black man is killed in another neighborhood, and the nation is divided again. Man, man doesn't seem like it. But I just want to remind us all that Jesus doesn't mince his words. Never has, never will. His promises hold true. And so we're called to live by faith, um, not by sight, because uh, studies all over the place show us just how deceptive our sight is, how little we actually are able to gauge reality by what's going on around us. We're called to live by faith, not by sight. To take heart, as he says. That's not just having a courageous disposition, but it's having a heart that trusts in an object of protection. You can trust him. He didn't give his disciples clear, specific instructions for the battle because he fought it alone. And now he's risen and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And so for us here in the 21st century, he personally accompanies us by his spirit. In your lonely moments, he personally accompanies you by his spirit. As I preach this sermon and you sit in your living room or hide in your closet from your kids, uh, he personally accompanies you by his spirit to apply his truth to your heart to bring you life in the desert. That's what he promised to do. So the upper room discourse is not a battle plan. But if I had to draw a battle plan out of it, and I shouldn't, but I will, um, it would go something like this. Stay with me. I will personally be with you. And as long as I'm with you, you are perfectly safe. I will fight your battles for you. Stay with me. If you're really strong and really capable, if you've done great this week, if you're a spiritual all-star, then you should stay with me, because I'm your only safe place. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And if you're a spiritual weakling, uh, if you're not the religious type, if you're a real, if your life is just a dumpster fire, you know what I mean? Um, then you should stay with me. I'm your only safe place. You're perfectly safe with me. I have overcome the world. It's not your war to win. Let's pray. God, so much of us are, we've been trapped in our houses, and um, it's just a, it's almost a, a cliche now that everyone devolves into patterns of self-loathing because they're not uh, keeping the positive attitude or accomplishing the things that they feel that they ought to accomplish, Um and uh, maybe we feel spiritually off, but Lord, um, you're with us. The basis of our whole faith, our whole confidence is that you fought the battle alone, um, you won the victory for us, and so you just, we're safe with you. Um, I, I just pray that you would comfort hearts this morning, and that you would draw, draw souls to yourself. We pray this in your precious name, Lord, and we thank you. Amen.